Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times and the team that brought you The Daily, this is Caliphate. Um, can I get you to tell us what day it is and what we're up to? Um, it's, um, it's Sunday, July 9th. Uh, we slept in what appears to be an abandoned uh, villa here um, on the outskirts of Western Mosul as we wait for our embed. Uh, with the counterterrorism division of the Iraqi security force. And we were supposed to take off at 8. Um, we're now sitting in the armored car that they provided for us, but the armored car is not, the armored car is not turning on. And so we have a, a gaggle of men that are um, pouring over the hood, trying to figure out how to get this car, uh, this car started. Um, there's a rumor that uh, it may just be out of gas. <laughs> There's a rumor that it just may be out of gas. Great. Great. Hawk, is it just out of diesel? Chapter 8, The Briefcase. Eventually, mm-hmm. after several hours, yeah. we get a working car. Yeah. Time to go? So we suit up. We put on our flak jackets, we put on our helmets. I've got several trash bags. It's me and you again, huh? We're with the elite counterterrorism force of the Iraqi army. We have their permission to go and collect documents. What, what, what's the plan? This is very dangerous. And we've told them that we're specifically trying to get to one building. The airstrike's still there, and the risk of the snipers as well. But it's unclear if it's going to be safe enough to go there. So there's a sniper risk, and they're planning an airstrike. Yes. In fact, they've warned us that we're driving into an active war zone. So are we now inside Mosul? Now this is Mosul. This is Western Mosul. This is the main road leading from Mosul to Baghdad. There's huge chunks missing on the road. Is that, are those airstrikes? Yeah. They're all airstrikes or V-beds. Hawk, could you describe what you see? Shaking your head, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah. I'm speechless. So as you can see, it's like just cars that the, what's left of to be known as cars and debris and rubble everywhere. I can't tell where am I now. This is my city. I don't know where am I. You don't even recognize it. It's not recognizable. We got into the city. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out as well. Okay, so we'll get out. We got out of the car. Yeah. What do you see? Yeah. So we're, we're parked on a narrow street uh, in western Mosul. The houses all around us have been destroyed. The windows have been blasted out. Coils of rebar. The gates and windows of the shops are warped from whatever blast they experienced. We just opened the doors to the car and immediately you could smell the, the stench of dead bodies. We can't see them, but you can smell them. So next we went to, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, yeah. it's kind of like a, a makeshift base basically the closest military position to where we were trying to go. And inside, there were all of these young uh, military men. They were actually all from the CTS, the Counterterrorism Service. Right. And they're the people that we're embedded with, so they invited us in. And you started talking with some of them. Yeah. In his rank, please. The commanders all have the same sort of phone and sort of iPad that has a map. That shows in great detail where the friendly forces are. Uh, and where ISIS is. So this is where we are? So the building we were aiming for was actually a church. This is the place that I knew had been the headquarters of the Hezbollah, that the religious police, the same unit that, that Huzaifa used to be a member of. And the Hezbollah building? And the Hezbollah building is right here. It's at that point this one. This one. This one. You see? that Hawk recognized the scenery. And he went, oh my God, we're actually here. Have these buildings been cleared? I, you know, it's, it's all clear. So the officer who was in charge of this forward base... Did he say that uh, we're, he's going to try and find us something? He's going to try to find us an escort to go to the Hezbollah building. Yes. He assigned a couple of Iraqi soldiers to escort us as we were going to go into this, these buildings to look for documents. If I speak about meters, it will be like uh, four to 500 meters. It would have been, I think, a couple of minutes walking if there was a road. Apparently walking in each other's footsteps, just like we were trained. But we had to clamber over all of this rubble. Meany and Hawk and I climbing over what looks like it used to be a taxi. We were walking on top of doorways, um, poking through windows, um, curving around the pillars of homes that had buckled. Rukmini is now climbing over pieces of what was once a tin roof, I believe. There's a... Hey, smoke, you see this? Holy shit. So on this walk that we took mm -hmm. um, towards the church, 
it became very apparent just how close we were in proximity to the, the front lines. I mean, in a way, hearing those sounds was reassuring to me because it just signaled that we were where we needed to be. What are you doing right now? I'm trying to get out some trash bags. We're about to go into the building. Finally, we got to the church, and... Could you just tell me real quick before we walk in uh, what, what sort of things you're, you're hoping to find? Um, we know that they kept careful, very detailed and meticulous records of the people they arrested and the Sharia punishments that they meted out against them. And obviously, that would just be the gold mine if we're able to find that. The second we walked in, even though it was destroyed... So look, this is on Naba. I knew right away that this had been an ISIS base. This is the ISIS weekly newsletter. They had graffitied the pillars and other walls with the word Bakia. What, um, what does that mean? Bakia wa tatamadat, uh, which means remaining and expanding. And this is their slogan. Mm-hmm. This is, think of it as ISIS forever. Can you look at this? Bunch of computers. Hard drives yanked out. We found... Well, this way, just to warn you, there's a couple of dead ISIS. Right, they're right in the door, and they're rotten. We found two bodies that the Iraqi military said were dead ISIS fighters. Yes, yeah, to get past them, we're going to have to walk over their bodies. So like, just like, seriously walk over? Yeah. I mean, I hate to sound clinical about this, but to me, it was one more confirmation that we're in the right place. This is a place that ISIS fighters were in, that they protected, and that they died for. They want us to go this way? So, searching for documents, what, what's the first thing that you're looking for? Where are you going? So I'm looking for the areas that are related to papers. I'm looking for furniture, desks, filing cabinets, shelves, closets. Um, I'm looking on the floors. Hey, Hawk. I wanted to ask um, Major Hassan if it's possible to pick up that backpack that's over there. We saw a pink backpack. Is it safe? It's a pink bag that has a kitten on it, and it's filled with C4, which is the explosive that they use in their homemade rockets. The backpack is filled. Don't bring it in. In that same area, uh, there were shell casings, remnants of weaponry. Um, Off to the side, there was a hole in the ground that looked like it was a tunnel. We know that ISIS uses tunnels as a way to go underneath a building and come out into another one so that they avoid detection from the air. Hawk has found an old sword. And we found one of the swords that they used for executions, right? This sword used uh, to behead people. Seriously? Yes. We were actually able to pick it up and and hold it. No, it's not. That was a surreal feeling. Yeah. Rukmini, can you describe what you're doing? Looking at a notebook here. I'm wondering if I have the courage to pick it up. And then we started to find the remnants of their documents. That's the ISIS logo. Yep. And you, on the ground, you picked up a torn piece of paper. It was from the letterhead of the Hezbollah. See anything, Rukmini? We found folders in there, several binders that were labeled uh, the one al Hezbollah, which means the Ministry of the Religious Police. And this stamp that you found says the same thing. This is the stamp. On their spine, the binders had the, the logo of the Hezbollah. So did, we were in the right place, but it's been searched. But the binders were empty. Uh, Where are we going? What this place looked like was the scene of a crime that had already been searched. I don't know who searched it before us. Did ISIS come through here and take away all of these records because they knew that they would reveal the accounting of the various war crimes they committed? Was it another security force that was here before the one that we were with? But no matter what, the records that I was looking for, they were gone. Still gunfire. 
And at a certain point... Are you in a hurry to get back? People were starting to feel nervous about how much time we had spent in this area that we had exposed ourselves for too long. I could go. Saying I could go. I was definitely one of those people who was feeling nervous. So we began to walk back. And two of our colleagues have already walked off. And you and I and Hawk are walking in a smaller little group a little bit further behind. And suddenly Hawk calls out because he recognized that off to the side of the church, I hadn't even noticed it, there was a cluster of buildings. And he recognized them because he had worked as a translator for American forces. He was outed by a neighbor, and he was hauled off to see uh, one of the Qadis, the religious judge in this building, who threw him in jail for basically, I think, a night. So the desk was here. As I entered, there was a desk. There was another cushion here. And so we managed to make our way through, you know, the debris there, and we entered the room. That's what he was used to wear this. This is the judge's robe. He he put, like, uh, a gown over his head. And the Qadi's robes were still hanging, the robe that he was wearing when he was judging people like Hawk. Hawk remembers sitting in that very chair. You wrote my name, Lato. If the Lato is still here, I would have seen, you would have seen it, my We go through his desk. We see that uh, the drawers have already been pulled out. And Hawk just took off and, like, ended up going into kind of the next set of rooms and the next set of rooms. How many more buildings do you want to look at? And suddenly, he came walking out with a briefcase. He was patting it down to try to get the dust off of it. And he unzipped the main zipper, and suddenly I saw IDs, financial reports, receipts, and I recognized very quickly the Islamic State logo on those papers. Just enough to realize that this was something really significant. I remember this moment because it actually was so hot and we had been out in the sun for so long that the cable on my microphone (laughs) was melting. The microphone was going in and out and I was fidgeting with it (laughs) as you guys were over there talking. And then it was in this moment that the New York Times push alert came through. The New York Times just said the Iraqi government claims Mosul has been taken. Saying that the Iraqi government was claiming victory in Mosul. Right. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more. Can you just explain what you're doing as you do it? So we're putting a towel down because there's going to be a lot of crap that, that is in this uh, in this trash bag of, of stuff that we're bringing out. It's really dirty. Okay, so you and Hawk and I, uh, we get back to our hotel in yeah. a safe part of Iraq. All right. I need you guys to take off your shoes. We grab one of the garbage bags mm-hmm. with some of the stuff that we've gotten in Mosul, including yes. this briefcase. Right. Can you just 
walk me through, like, what are the steps that you take next? Sure. So we put on surgical gloves. Thanks, man. And we empty out uh, the, the contents of the garbage bag. Okay. Oof, God, it smells bad. How would you describe that smell? How would you describe It's like what you would smell if you were in an airstrike and a building was falling around you. And we start making piles. Okay, we're going to make a pile of important and unimportant, okay? What we're seeing right away is... This is um, I think this must be the zakat that this person's paying. Probably. Yeah. Important? There are books of receipts. Good guys. There are financial reports. They are so honest. Yeah. They are taking yeah. receipts, yeah. motherfuckers. There are memos. This is uh, some notes. Ooh, how exciting. There are letters on ISIS stationery between different ministries of ISIS. And this is like attorney general. Having detailed discussions about aspects of the economy. This is very new. This is basically evidence of a bunch of departments I didn't know existed. Um, there are people's IDs. Keys. I have so many ISIS keys. Uh, there are CD-ROMs. And eventually everything that we have is going to be translated. And the best part uh, is going to be sent to specialists who are going to help us mine every bit of the information we have got. Can you tell me how you feel right now? I'm feeling really excited. I'm feeling like giddy, you know? I will admit that I've never felt more like a detective finding clues. Like on ISIS CSI, <laughs> right? You know, when I'm holding these documents, the thing that's never far from my mind is that if we hadn't retrieved these very papers from the rubble, they very likely would have been destroyed and would have been lost forever. I'm sorry to slow you down, but yeah. will you just describe what the bag looks like? So it's a black um, laptop bag that's... That All right, so when it comes to the briefcase specifically, yeah. what made it so, so special? Important. Yeah. Each pocket at a time. So the documents we're pulling out of the briefcase... He, he's like some kind of accountant or something. ...help so confirm and flesh out the reporting I've already been doing up until this point. How can you just describe how it looks? Uh, it looks really organized. I mean, this is like uh, Excel, Excel kind of uh, worksheet, spreadsheet. And that is that ISIS is a self-sustaining organism when it comes to its own finances. Much like the United States makes money from a million different sources, so too ISIS had a diversified portfolio. They were m making money from the fields that they taxed, from the seeds that they sold to people, from the flour that went to mills, mm -hmm. uh, from the traders who were being taxed as they were moving flour from one city to another, and from the merchants who stocked uh, those commodities who had to pay income taxes once a year. And why is that? specifically important to know. So one of the major ways that America and European governments tried to combat terrorism since 9-11 was to try to starve these groups of cash. In the early years of Al-Qaeda, the way they did this is they would look for their external donors and they would freeze their bank accounts. But there are no major donors in the ecosystem that is ISIS. Because the group is self-financed, there's no bank account in Saudi Arabia that you can freeze that would have any meaningful impact on the ledger of the Islamic State. There's not even a single source of weapons that you can cut off, because according to one of the other documents we found in the briefcase... The faculty uh -huh. of military manufacturing and development. Oh my God. Oh my God, this is amazing. They had a division inside of their military that was dedicated to the manufacturing of weaponry. I'm kissing oh, this piece on. of paper. I'm kissing this piece of paper. The, the piece amazing. of paper that, that Hawk will only touch with gloves, you just kissed. <laughs> okay, we're going to create a very important pile. 
We're going to put that. <laughs> yeah. So basically, this is indicating that within the Islamic State, there's a unit that is dedicated to manufacturing and developing weaponry. We've assumed that this is there because they're doing them in such a uniform fashion. But this is it, finally, you know? This is a group that was hell-bent on being independent, on being self-sufficient, on relying on no one. This guy, who the owner of this bag... And in this briefcase... Some guy, some head guy, some big high, big shot. We found transactions totaling $19 million. We actually took the time to add up the receipts and invoices that we found inside, and that's what we came up with. $19 million, right? So we knew that whoever owned this briefcase had to be important. Like a, like a high up, like a general or something like that. Not a general, a bureaucrat. So unlike the United States, uh, which went into Iraq in 2003 and immediately dissolved the Ba'athist state of Saddam Hussein and essentially threw all of these people, um, these administrators, into unemployment uh, and created the conditions that eventually led to to the rise of terror groups uh, in Iraq, ISIS did the exact opposite. They came to Mosul and they built their state on the back of the one that already existed. Hmm. And so the civil servants who had worked in the Ministry of Agriculture and the Department of Sanitation and the Electricity Division, they kept doing the same job that they had done before. To Brother Abu ha- Sorry, this guy. Abu ha- so we know that whoever it was who owned this briefcase, they worked as a bureaucrat. That's right. And beyond that, what we're able to figure out from looking at the papers... So see, it's all the same name. ...is that the person's name is Abu Jarrah. We're seeing paper after paper signed with this name. But that doesn't actually help us identify who this human being is because Abu Jarrah is a code name. It's a kunya, it's a non de guerre. And the whole purpose of having a kunya is to hide the identity of the person who's who's using okay, it. So this guy maybe, okay, but has, in the briefcase, in one of the folds of the briefcase, we pulled out a color Xerox of an ID belonging to a man named Yasser Issa. Awesome. You see his picture. It's a man with a receding uh, hairline, with a bulbous nose, bushy eyebrows, and kind of a Saddam uh, Hussein-style mustache. And we then pull out the marriage certificate of Yasser Issa. I'm putting this in important. But finally, the document that we pull out that seals the deal is Yasser Issa's Pledge of Allegiance to ISIS. I'm going to put that in important. We see that in 2014, not long after uh, Mosul fell, um, in Mosul, he pledges allegiance to the Islamic State. It has his full name, and it says that his kunya, or his non de guerre, is Abu Jara. So we mm. now know Yasser Issa is Abu Jara, okay? And Abu Jara is the administrator of the trade division. So now you know his job title. Oh, now we know his job you've got, title. You've got his merit. You, we've so got you've got his, his real name. We've got his real his, name. You know his wife's name. We know his wife's name. You, you, we you know, know when his he got title. Married. Hang on, let's put that. Maybe we can find this guy. Okay. Yeah. What do you do next? Right. So now that we have all this information, we're looking for somebody who might have interacted with him. And in the briefcase, we found a whole bunch of documents from local mills in northern Iraq and especially from the Mosul area. Does he remember an ISIS guy guy called Abu Jada? And so Hawk and I ended up driving from mill to mill, trying to find people who might remember a man named Abu Jada. 
And the employees of the mills and the silos and the granaries, the very people who had dealt with ISIS leadership, they recognized his name. And they knew him specifically as one of ISIS's money men. He was a person who was deputed by ISIS to come and collect cash. We were very careful not to blend with them. We would keep our distances. The more keep away from them, the more safer you are. They said he was very taciturn, really kind of just business as always. And one of the people who interacted the most with him, he said, Oh, a laptop. 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 So on his ID, there's a couple of clues that led us to be able to identify his address. It lists the name of his parents, his mother and his father, and crucially, it lists his tribal affiliation. He's Mm. from the Al-Aswadi tribe, which is an important tribe from central Iraq. Using those clues, um, we were able, through our colleagues in the Baghdad Bureau, to track down his family in a suburb of Samarra. So this was after I'd already flown back to the States when you and Hawk and, and our bureau manager, Abu Malik, you guys actually went to the house of the owner of the briefcase. Right. He used to what? He used to do it? So we walk in and first of all, it had all of the trappings of this aristocratic Um, house. It's enormous high ceilings, chandelier in every single room, beautiful tapestries in this enormous, like, banquet hall sort of space. He said what? He said that... Who's there? And he's the older brother? It's the family of the owner of the briefcase. It's his uncle, it's his brothers, it's several of his cousins. Basically a lot of men. And they immediately begin playing on that. Uh, They raise their voices, they're angry at our suggestion that Abu Jara was a member of ISIS, and they say to us, how can this even be possible? This is the scion of an important family. He had all of his needs taken care of, he had no need for money. Why is it you think they would be pointing to their money in this way? There's almost an accepted hypothesis. I would call it a cliche or even a meme that members of ISIS have joined for material gain. Mm-hmm. That they did it for the money. Because they were poor. They were poor. They were shepherds. In, yeah. They were these kind of hapless people who had no other outlet. And the big bad terrorist group comes along and basically buys them off. Right. I have found that that hypothesis is mostly hollow. And if you dig even slightly below the surface, you'll find that people that joined did so because they had some ideological affinity for them. And uh, he was employed by the directorate of the agriculture here in Samarra of Samarra. Up to this point, they don't know that I have the records in my backpack showing exactly how Abu Jarrah joined this terror group. And as I mentioned that, They begin to tell us a story that goes, I think, a long way to explaining why this young man would have joined the Islamic State. 
The family describes to us that soon after the U.S. invasion in 2003, in the middle of the night, uh, their door was beaten down by U.S. soldiers who mm. came in uh, with their with their muddy boots and dragged the elderly patriarch of the family, uh, Abu Jarrah's grandfather, out of his bedroom and took him away to be questioned because of an IED that had gone off on a nearby road. You're saying that they they blamed him they for blamed masterminding the grand- it or something? They blamed the grandfather for having planted a landmine that took the lives of, of several U.S. Marines. Mm. Um, As it turned out, he must not have been guilty because the family told us that he was released the next day. This is a wealthy, affluent family that is used to people kowtowing to them, that is used to people taking their shoes off when they come in, that is used to getting getting flattered, you know, getting gifts, getting talked to in a polite way. Mm -hmm. And this was an incredibly humiliating incident. And one of the details that stuck with the family that they told me about is the grandfather was actually an invalid. He walked with crutches. Mm. And when the soldiers came in, they they screamed at him to, you know, to follow them. He didn't understand what was going on. And as it was, he couldn't walk. And so they grabbed him by his arms and literally pulled him down the stairs and then up the driveway. The family remembers his feet bobbing and, and hitting oh, the wow. stairs that was as it was going down, mm-hmm. and then and then seeing him dragged through the the dirt up their uh, their inclined driveway as neighbors came out to gawk. Um, was Yasser a small boy when this happened, or how old was he? It was bad enough that the American commander in the area came and apologized to the family, and we got that account not just from the family but also from the police station up the street. So. Um, At a certain point, we hear a woman's voice from the hallway. And it's explained to me that this is the mother of Abu Jura. She's very curious about what's happening because she understands that we're talking about her son. But because this is a conservative family, she did not feel that it was appropriate for her to join us. But she has her ear to the door and hears something that upsets her, and suddenly she's yelling through the door. So what we did is Abu Malik invited the mother um, to come with me uh, and with him uh, and, and Hawk to a table that was essentially at the other end of this cavernous parlor. I've come all this way, not because I want to taint her son, but because I want to try to get the truth. And we sat across from her um, at this beautiful teak table covered in lace. Uh, I remember that there was, a, uh, you know, a crystal bowl in the middle. And one by one, we started pulling out the documents. And then she started hitting her own face with her palm. It's And then very soon after that, she started weeping. This is not how, how, how I, uh, I, I brought him yeah, up. I know. Yeah. I, 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 I,
from the bad friends. She had concerns about the people he was hanging out with when ISIS took over. Before he left in 2014, did he show any extremist tendencies? And then the second thing she said is, of all of my sons, he is the one who took the humiliation of his grandfather the worst. Tell her, I cover ISIS. I, have, I don't know how many mothers I have spoken to, okay? But tell her it's not her fault, okay? And here is where you see the catch-22 of using military power to try to uh, address terrorism. We know that the U.S. invasion created Abu Jaraz, created Mm -hmm. people like this young man who were humiliated, who were angry, and who turned that anger into affiliation with this terror group. And it's because of that very phenomenon that that the Obama administration put off the eventual intervention that only reached Mosul in the fall of 2016 because they wanted local forces to lead the fight. They didn't want to have U.S. troops on the ground, Mm. fearing that this would just perpetuate uh, the cycle. But if you don't use military might, what you have is the rise of Mosul. So both avenues in different ways can lead to... The, the, The further spawning of this group... Right. The world is divided into the interventionist camp and the pacifist camp. And what I have seen through my reporting is the intervention leads to the Abu Jaraz. The non-intervention, leaving the Syrian civil war to drag on for years, leads to Abu Huzaifas. So... Where is Abu Jarrah now? I don't know. I repeatedly asked the family where he is. And although they were very clear in saying that they knew that he's still alive, which led me to think that they must be talking to him, they were incredibly vague about his whereabouts now, going so far as to say that they have no contact with him, they're not sure where he's at, etc. I mean, for all I know, he could have been upstairs the whole time that we were talking. I mean, regardless of whether or not he really was upstairs, what we do know is that thousands of members, thousands, have managed to escape. They shaved off their beards, they cut off their hair, they changed their clothes, they slipped into refugee camps, they managed to get back into Europe, and they're out there. But what we also know is that some of them were captured. Why are they tying his wrists? I don't feel comfortable with them. Do you think that's necessary, Hawk? Sorry? Yes. Okay. For the next few weeks, you'll be hearing Caliphate unfold on The Daily every Saturday. We're also releasing Caliphate as a standalone series, and we're publishing new episodes on Thursday afternoons. 
two days before you'll hear them on The Daily. So if you want to listen early, you can subscribe to the series by searching for Caliphate on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And for Time subscribers, we're making episodes available a full week early at nytimes.com slash caliphate. That's nytimes.com slash C-A-L-I-P-H-A-T-E. If you've been looking for a reason to subscribe, now might be a good time. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.